Many of you know that in t- preparation for today's sermon, I asked for emails and letters reacting to the election. Not just the results, but the unusually divisive season we have just experienced. We have witnessed uncivil and violent words and deeds, things that we don't want to pass on to our children. People are scared and struggling and have been so for a long time. And I want to begin this morning by offering you a word of thanks. About 75 of you sent thoughtful, faithful responses that have helped me to know all of you in a deeper way. We are a diverse congregation. And at a time where there is a lot of fear out there that people of differing viewpoints are not talking to one another, I think our presence here together is something to celebrate. And I hope that as we live into the next season of our life together, you will remember and value the diversity of our community. You will value it in your coffee hour conversations and your social media posts and in all kinds of other ways that we interact with each other. I feel blessed to be the pastor of this diverse community wherever we are united in our care for one another and our protection for the vulnerable, and our love of God. Let us pray. Silence in us any voice but yours, O God. And may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts, may they be acceptable in your sight. For you, O Lord, are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Over the years, there have been many, many fictional dramas about the American presidency on TV and in the movies. One of them, a number of years ago, featured the following plotline. A great Asian pianist, a North Korean citizen, comes to play at the White House. And while he is there, he secretly conveys to the president that he wishes to defect. This presents a quandary, both legal and moral, for it is illegal for the president to deny such a request. And at the same time, the pianist is only in America in the first place because of a diplomatic exchange, part of developing nuclear talks with the North Koreans. Obviously, allowing the young pianist to defect would derail any political progress that might be made to help the masses who are suffering. In the end, the president explains these complexities to the young man and leaves him with the choice, telling him that freedom means making choices. In other words, freedom comes with responsibilities. Freedom is an important and appropriate sermon topic because it is not just an American idea, it is a Christian idea. Just about every theologian at some point writes about freedom because it is a fundamental fundamental matter of faith. 
Anytime that someone mentions God's providence or guiding hand in the world relative to human will, they're talking about freedom. Whenever people ask, is God in charge or are we? Does prayer work? Does my way of living determine what will happen to me when I die? All of these questions are questions about freedom. Martin Luther, the Reformation theologian, made one of the more significant contributions to the idea of freedom in a little pamphlet called Christian Liberty. Interestingly, he wrote it at one of the most divisive times in his own political life. It was around 1520. He was fiercely debating the 95 Theses in hopes of reforming the Catholic Church from within. Luther described Christian freedom this way. A Christian, he said, is a perfectly free Lord of all, subject to none. And, he said, a Christian is a perfectly dutiful servant of all, subject to all. Now, what the heck does that mean, and how can those two things both be true? Let's take them one at a time. The first part says a Christian is a perfectly free Lord of all, subject to none. That means that when it comes to the big questions in life, eternal salvation, providence, sin, Luther said that when it comes to these things, we are free. We need not worry about them because through Jesus Christ, God has taken on these concerns for us. Now, sin, salvation, providence, these things may seem esoteric, but here's a way that a teacher of mine once explained this idea to me in a very practical way. Good teachers, he said, want to reach every one of their students. But with some students, it is really hard to get through to them. And yet, surprisingly, years later, a student that you thought you failed to reach sometimes comes back to you and mentions a thing you said, something you can't even remember, that changed their life for the better. And this is an amazing thing, he said, but also very, very frightening. Because what about the number of times you did not say the right thing? and you lost someone without even knowing it. He went on to say that whether you're a teacher or a surgeon or a criminal lawyer or a parent, there are things like this in all of our lives, things that we cannot control. And life would be unbearable if we thought the ultimate success or failure of things is really up to us. But it is not. God is the one in control. And we can get up in the morning, 
cross the street, do our jobs, fly on an airplane, give our kids the keys to the car because of faith. We can trust God so we can go and live our lives. And that is freedom. Knowing that whatever happens in the midst of the things that you cannot control, God is watching over us. There's a second part to Luther's philosophy. He said that a Christian is a perfectly dutiful servant of all, subject to all. Luther wrote that because God gives us this amazing gift of freedom. And he said that because we have that freedom, we should be, quote, guided in all our works by this one thing alone, that we may serve others in all we do, considering nothing except the need and advantage of our neighbor. In other words, if we have taken seriously the tremendous gift of freedom that we have from God, there is but only one response. In all of the details of this life that you can control, always, always, always serve the needs of others. This is how we show our thanks to God, the one who gave us the freedom in the first place. That's the intellectual de definition of freedom, the theological one. Here's how it works out in a story. In the story that we heard today from the book of Genesis, the story of Jacob and Esau, Jacob is the younger brother, the trickster and the usurper in the story. Through deceit, Jacob, as a young man, steals the family blessing and birthright, the inheritance from his older brother Esau. It is a serious offense. So serious that Jacob leaves home and flees for his life. He ends up in the land of Haran, where he hides for 14 years, estranged from his brother. Last week in her lectures with us, A.B. Jill Levine told us that this is a literary trope. Whenever you see two brothers in a Bible story, you're supposed to know what is happening. There is going to be a struggle. The trope of two brothers struggling for dominance comes up again and again in the Bible. Right before the story of Jacob and Esau, you see it with Isaac and Ishmael. Immediately afterwards, you see it with Joseph and his brothers. All the way back at the beginning of the book of Genesis, you see it for the first time with Cain and Abel. It's a good enough story that in the 20th century, John Steinbeck is still telling it about two American brothers living east of Eden. It's not just an Old Testament story, it's found in the New Testament as well. In the Gospels, the great story plays it out between the prodigal son and his brother. It is a universal theme, the struggle between brothers. And in the introduction to the Jacob and Esau story, we are told quite clearly that this story is never just about brothers. 
For before Jacob and Esau are ever born, their pregnant mother is told this about her sons. Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples born of you shall be divided. Brothers struggle. Nations struggle. Political parties struggle. This story isn't just about you if you have a brother. It's about all of us, for we all live in a world that has divisions. If you think the conversation at your Thanksgiving dinner this week is going to be stilted or difficult, you're in good company. Remember that Jacob couldn't come home for Thanksgiving dinner for 14 years because he thought his brother would kill him. So this is a common story. There are many versions of it. But if you ask people about stories of struggling brothers in the Bible, most people will mention the story of Jacob and Esau first. And that may be due to the great storytelling or the length of the story. It takes up ten chapters in the book of Genesis. But my hunch is that maybe, just maybe, The love for this story has more to do with the way that it ends. After 14 years away, Jacob, with the fortune that he has amassed, leaves the land of Haran and rides out on his own to make his way in the world. And soon he hears that his brother Esau is coming in the wilderness, coming with 400 men, coming, Jacob is sure, to kill him. Jacob is so sure of his demise that he takes several steps. He splits his herds and his flocks into two groups so that if one is wiped out, another will remain for the care of his family. He kisses that family and says goodbye to them forever as he rides out to meet his brother alone. And praying for mercy The scripture says that Jacob by himself went out ahead of the rest of them, bowing himself to the ground seven times until he came near to his brother. And at that moment, the scripture tells us that Esau ran to meet him and embraced him and fell on his neck and kissed him, and they both wept. The Jacob and Esau story touches us because the brothers are reconciled. They learn how to live together again. And how does that happen? It happens because though they've been divided for years, though Jacob is so frightened of his brother that he divides his flocks and his herds and says goodbye to his family, nevertheless, there is one brother, Esau, who God inspires to reach out to his sibling and forget and forgive the sins of the past. To say... I want to know you again. I want us to have a future together. Esau understands freedom. 
Despite all of his difficulties in life, God has taken care of him, and so he is free to do what he wants with his brother, and he chooses to take responsibility for fixing their relationship. This is a story about nations and groups of people who are at odds with one another. It's a story for Americans today, many of whom are finding themselves deeply divided from one another, as they have been for a long time. It's a story for our congregation and for the neighborhoods that surround us, whether the topic is the election or the ray-tensing trial or health care reform. Reconciliation starts with somebody. Somebody who wants to listen and to learn and to say, I want to know you again. We must do this work, my friends. If we cannot do this work in our church, how can we expect it in our country? It is the responsibility of churches such as ours to learn to talk about our differences and to do so without attacking one another. To model in our church for the community the idea that difference can exist without personal attacks or appeals to fear and hate and discrimination. Our country can do better than that. And while we are doing the work of taking the log out of our own eye, we must then be watchful and vigilant for signs of injustice and prejudice and discrimination. And we must forbid that behavior and prophetically resist it wherever it may be found. Christian freedom gives us the peace of knowing that God is watching in the places in our lives that are beyond our control. But freedom also carries with it the responsibility to love our neighbors and to do so selflessly, being especially ready to stand up for those who may not be able to stand up for themselves. In the midst of our own situations and our own hurried lives, these tasks can seem too great. The idea that we can reconcile as a people may seem naive. And that feeling is not without a foundation, for some of the Bible's stories about brothers do not get resolved. But when that happens, it is tragic, and it is avoidable. And I believe that for a very non-political reason, my experience with families when they lose someone they love. Every minister I know from time to time visits with grieving people who have lost someone from whom they are estranged. Maybe it's a brother, but maybe it's a parent or a child or a friend, anyone who died when their relationship was broken. No one knows the tragedy of division better than one who allows the opportunity for forgiveness to pass them by and then finds that it's too late. 
And I have to imagine that those who went before us and have died, that they look down on us from heaven and simply cannot believe that we spend so much effort divided from one another because of our pride and our arrogance and our refusal to forgive. In this Thanksgiving week, friends, my humble word to you is this. For Christians, receiving the gifts of freedom means taking the responsibility to love one another as Christ first loved us. Reconciliation begins with people who, out of their thankfulness for freedom, reach out to others in love. And may that work begin here in the church that we share. Amen.